Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he wisely answered, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and inspired by the Spirit of God through Mark who wrote this gospel for us. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, again, it is good to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day. If you have your copy of Scripture, please uh, locate our passage and follow along, if you will. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. The Bible teaches us that there is only one God and that He has made us. Also, we are taught that we are to truly love Him. And in truly loving God, that means we are to love our neighbor, our fellow human beings, not just other Christians, but all people, because they are made in His image and in His likeness. And that means that we must, from the heart, perfectly desire and do God's will for His glory and for the good of others. Our problem is that we don't live up to that standard of love. Not even close. We can acknowledge it, and we do as Christians. We can admire it, many do, even those who aren't Christians. We can give lip service to it, and we should with all sincerity, but not just lip service. We should speak of it. But we fall short of it. And our dilemma is that our failure at consistent perfect love is not something that God is willing to overlook. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought God is love, and surely He can compromise a little bit with that. We may not love perfectly, but why would He be so harsh in regard to love, after all? Why is God not willing to overlook it? Our imperfection. Our imperfection at doing His will, which is based on the royal law, as James chapter 2, verse 8 says, 
the royal law of love. This is the law of the kingdom. Well, it should be obvious to us as Christians, if God were willing to overlook our imperfection in loving others and therefore fulfilling His law, then that would make love insignificant. And that's not possible. It's not possible for love to be insignificant because love is the very essence of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. And it extends to us, His creatures. God demands of us love in full. And we fail to deliver and if you're honest about your own heart, you know that love is truly lacking there. I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not keenly aware that I'm not being loving, at the very least, in my thoughts. I lack love. We all lack love as fallen sinners in Adam. That is human nature in its present condition, apart from the grace of God in Christ. God's law demands more than some outward expression of obedience. It is a requirement that we have a heart of love for God and for others, which we do not naturally possess, nor can we produce it. You say, well, you are really making me feel bad about myself this morning. Well... The Word of God does that when we're dealing with His law, does it not? We fall short of that. That's what sin is. That's what sin means. And if love is necessary and we lack it in true measure, how can we ever do what pleases God? How can we ever, ever be made right with Him? Well, if we listen to God we find that the commandment that condemns us for our lack of love to keep it, that commandment actually drives us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks about that in the book of Galatians very clearly. The law is given to make us know we're sinners so that we might in turn believe the promise of God of salvation that is in Jesus. But the commandment drives us to Christ, the one who always loves to God's satisfaction, the one who does so sufficiently for everyone who trusts in Him. And the question is whether or not you do trust Him as the true commandment keeper. Jesus is the commandment keeper. Now the Jews of our Lord's day had the entire Old Testament scripture pointing them to Christ. They, however, didn't recognize him when he appeared on the scene. They were looking for a Messiah, a Christ, someone to deliver them, but their idea of the kingdom was just an earthly kingdom. 
God would come and He would make all things better for them and overthrow the Romans that occupied them in their day and so on and so forth. He would finally deal with all their enemies and Israel, the Jewish people, would reign with their Messiah. These religious leaders failed to see that God paved the way for Christ with the law and prophets, that the kingdom was more than what they perceived. They knew the law. The law convicted them of their sin. They came to the temple. They offered their sacrifices. They went through all the ritual of the old covenant. But Jesus frequent skirmishes with them only highlighted the fact that they knew neither the scripture nor the power of God. They did not understand God's redemptive purpose and plan. They did not see Jesus as the reality of all the shadows and the types found in the old covenant and throughout the scripture of the Old Testament. Jesus pointed this out in the previous passage. You remember the last time I shared the word with you. We looked at verses 18 through 27 and Jesus has an encounter with the Sadducees and they question him of course about the resurrection because they denied that and they thought perhaps they would take the word and they would take a certain portion of it and place before Jesus some what they thought was an impossible scenario to resolve and Jesus' conclusion and his point to them was that you don't even understand what that passage is about, much less the rest of Scripture. You look into it and you think that in it, as he says elsewhere, you find eternal life, but it speaks of me. So you don't know the Scripture and you don't know the power of God to save sinners. And as Jesus says back in chapter 10, he came to seek and to save the lost. Not those who think that they are righteous. They weren't content with the old covenant, or they were content rather with it. They weren't content with what Jesus was saying about it. Look back at the beginning of chapter 12 and you'll remember that parable of the vineyard or the tenants, those who kept the vineyard. And his whole point there is that God established you as a nation for a reason so that I might come and bring in this kingdom and yet you reject me and want the kingdom for yourself. He says you're rebels. You, you don't understand what God is doing and you reject the very one that has come to accomplish his purpose. And so they are engaged with Jesus in these skirmishes. Always trying to publicly entrap him. Always trying to find some wrong word that Christ might say that they might condemn him or hand him over at least to the Roman authorities. They wanted this earthly kingdom. They thought it was strictly Jewish strictly of this world and didn't see Jesus coming. At least not the way God said he would. 
Verse 28 tells us of Jesus' encounter with a scribe. He is a, not a Sadducee. He's a member of another uh, religious group, a religious sect known as the Pharisees, in all likelihood. It doesn't say that, but most, most scribes or lawyers, as Matthew's account tells us, um, he was an expert in the law, and most of them were of the party of the Pharisees. And we come to this monumental passage on the great commandment because that was this scribe, uh, that, was his, that was his focus in life. That was his vocation. He studied the law. He was an expert. He was a lawyer, as it were. And this scribe recognized that Jesus answered the Pharisees well. What they thought was a question that was impossible for Jesus to answer without getting himself into trouble, Jesus masterfully answered. And so I think, although this is a confrontation, and, and Matthew's gospel presents it a little more as that, but Mark presents this scribe as coming perhaps a little, with a little bit more integrity. With a little bit more, at least outward, humility. He doesn't really seem, by the language here or in Matthew, to really be attacking Jesus quite like the, the Sadducees were or quite like the Pharisees have done on other occasions and will do in the coming days in that they will trump up charges to get Christ crucified. But he comes... And he sees that Jesus answered them well about the resurrection, and so he comes with a more respectful test of Jesus, if you will. And Matthew 22 calls it a test. He came that he might test Jesus, and he asked him this question. How would he summarize God's commandments given in the law? In verses 29 and 30, the dispute is about Scripture once more. If anyone was an expert, it was the scribe. Remember, the Sadducees didn't accept all of the Old Testament Scripture. They primarily focused on the books of Moses. But the scribes considered the prophets and all the other historical books and so forth. They were looking for a Messiah too, and they knew that it had something to do with this command to love. And Jesus, upon the scribe's question of which commandment is the most important of all, how would you summarize this, Jesus? Jesus immediately goes to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, that very prominent passage in the mind of the Jews known as the Shema, if I pronounced that correct, correctly. It simply means to hear, and it's based on that word that begins that passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's a tall order, isn't it? 
Do you love God that way? No. No, we do not. Did this scribe? No, he did not, and he knew that. But Jesus goes on. That would have covered the first four commands of the Ten Commandments, and the, the last commandments were important too because they flow out of the first. It's not just how we view God, it's how we view our neighbor, our fellow human being created in the image of God. That's your neighbor. They may or may not be a Christian, by the way. But you are to love them. They may be your enemy. We're taught we should love them. That doesn't mean have the warm fuzzies about them. You may not like them. You may not like what they do or how they act or how they treat you. That would be understandable if it was bad. But you are to love them. You are to love them like you are to love your Christian brothers and sisters. You are to love them by seeking their good according to the will of God for their life, even if they don't seek your good in return. And Jesus says, you are not only to abide by this great commandment, which God has given you and made sure that it was well established in your minds that all of His law hinges on this love for Him. Your motivation must be a love for God. But you are then in turn to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He adds that from Leviticus 19 verse 18. So Deuteronomy 6.4 is a core confession of Israel's faith in the one true God. It calls for His old covenant people to acknowledge Him as the only God and to love and serve Him with all their being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scribe will summarize it as with all the understanding. There are various ways that the Scripture says it, but it's all referring to that same passage. That's their confession of faith, as it were. And then Jesus says, but there's a second, there's an extension to that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, just as the law also teaches. Together they are the summation of what God desires of us. They're enshrined in the Ten Commandments. They are put into practice in all the civil law of Israel. What are we going to do? We don't keep that one either. We can't even, we can't even come close to the sum, summary of all of this, much less all the individual laws that they, they had when it came to, to worship of God and the ceremonial law and the temple and all of the, the civil laws and dealing with one another on a daily basis. They fell short. That's what God commanded Israel because that's what God desires of everyone. Israel, the nation, was to reflect the relationship with God. They were in covenant with God. 
They had that relationship with the Lord their God, but their imperfection was also to emphasize the Savior God promised to redeem sinners from every nation. So here they are, and here we are. Well, what was all the ceremony about in the temple? Why on earth would God give that? If it was possible for us to love as we ought to, for Israel, the nation, to love as they ought, He gave that because it's not possible, because we fail, because our hearts must be changed. And even then, we cannot keep the law perfectly. We cannot love with perfection. Not our God, not our neighbor. And the answer of the scribe seems to indicate in verse 32 a bit of humility, as I said, a recognition that the commandment found him lacking in love. I almost think he... He bowed his head a little and, and couldn't quite look at Jesus as he answered. He repeats and affirms Jesus' answer is true. He does so by affirming that it's in keeping with Israel's confession of their faith in the one true God. And he even cites the gist of other Old Testament passages like First. Samuel 15:22 and Psalm 40 and verse 6 and Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 all of which we could summarize by saying that love and keeping the commandments as God says is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now what does that tell us about the scribe? Well, he considered all these things deeply. These are things he thought about. What about you? When you read the Bible, when you come to church and you hear the Scripture proclaimed, and you hear the laws of God, and you hear what God demands of you, what is your response? How do you see that? Is, does it humble you? Does it make you realize, I don't live up to that even though I desire to as a Christian? Well, the Jews knew that everyone failed to love God and their neighbor truly. They knew the Old Testament sacrifice taught the need for an atonement for sin. They knew it required repentance toward God. They knew it required faith in His provision of a sacrifice that would satisfy. And yet, that did not negate the fact that God required love. And you say, well, why do you talk about that? You're, you're sort of going in circles. Well, not, not really, if you'll follow me. It may seem that way. Someone still has to perfectly love God and man according to the commandment, and someone has to then atone for our sins in order for the commandment to love to be fulfilled. Who will do that for us? 
Who will love where we failed to love? Who will suffer the punishment for our failure? Who will be the faithful Israel, as it were? And really, that's what is behind this passage. I think Mark has in mind as he's presenting that here, and so does Matthew, that Jesus is the Israel. God says, what I want my servants to do, and Mark is presenting Jesus as the servant of God, the faithful servant. Jesus is the commandment keeper. And he does that for you. Jesus loved perfectly for you. And then in love, Jesus gave his life for you. Does that comfort your soul, which was when hearing of God's command to love perfectly, it was disturbed, does that comfort you? The commandments were forcing the scribe to face these questions. Have the commands of God, knowing what God requires of you, has that made you face the fact that I fall short? I don't have what God requires of me. And has that brought you to Christ and have you looked to Him in true faith and said, no, I don't keep it that way. I don't love that way. I don't love God that way. I don't love my neighbor that way, but Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, we're told. That is, he'd come to the right conclusion about the commandments. He understood what the commandments were about. It made him feel guilty. He fell short. But when Jesus says to him in response, you are not far from the kingdom of God, listen, he's not saying try a little harder to love like you should. Now you should work at loving God. You should work at loving your neighbor. You should want to do that, but you should always know you will always fall short. And you should know that Jesus never did. He loved perfectly. Time would not permit us to go through all the passages that speak about the love of Christ for us. And the love of God the Father in sending Christ to be what we cannot be ourselves in order that we may be what He is by faith in Him. You are not far from the kingdom of God means look to me as the one who loves perfectly and so loves you that I will die for your lack of love. 
This reminds us a little of the encounter of Jesus with the rich young ruler back in chapter 10, you'll remember. He came, he thought he did keep the law that way, being self-deceived. And I've done all of this from my youth. And what did Jesus say to him? Well, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. What would that reflect had he done that? That would require love, would it not? And his response was to be sorrowful for he owned many possessions and he walked away. It reminds us of Nicodemus and Jesus meeting with Nicodemus in the night hours. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes and says, I, We know you're sent from God. No one can do the things that you do unless he were of God. And implied in what Nicodemus is asking is, what is it that I lack? I know I lack. I, I understand what the Word says. In fact, Jesus tells Nicodemus and addresses him as a teacher or the teacher in Israel. You, you of all people know these things. And yet why do you not understand that you can't do it on your own? You must be born from above. You must be born again. The Spirit of God must come and change your heart. Why? So that then you can love and then fulfill it yourself? No. So that then you can look to Jesus Christ in faith and be saved. Yes, you will then have a love for righteousness. You will love God like you did not. You will love your neighbor like you did not, but you will do that imperfectly and you will always need the perfection of Jesus' love to stand in your place. That's what righteousness is. To be right with God, to desire His will for His glory and to do that will in relation to other people. It's motivated by a heart of love. So if you hear the word of God this morning and you're convicted by His law and the things God demands of you, chiefly to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and you say, well, I can't live up to that, if you hear that, you're not far from the kingdom of God, but there's no step that you can take closer to God on your own. You're not far from the kingdom, but God's going to have to reach over and pull you in the rest of the way. He must change your heart. And He must show you who Christ Jesus is. Look to Him in faith. That's the unspoken invitation as Jesus and this scribe look at each other. 
the invitation of Christ to the scribe, you're not far. What does that make someone think when you know I can't live up to what God expects and I'm, I'm right on the precipice here. I, I see this and yet I don't know how to get closer to God. I don't know how to be what God wants me to be. Well, you either will mourn and repent of your sin and look to God and say, have mercy on me, O God, the sinner that I am. Or you're going to walk away thinking, I can work on that. I can do a little better. I can bring myself that extra step. It'll come to me and I'll be fit for God's kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what the scripture teaches. We don't know what happened to the scribe. All we're told is that after that, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions in a public debate at least. It was evident that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ and that the law pointed toward him. And in fact, Jesus will just, in the next verses, take that opportunity to in emphasize not having any more public opposition, but to emphasize that I am the Christ. I am this perfect son that God has always promised. I am the one that will do what Israel could not and what all sinners cannot do. I am the one who will love as it is required. Love is required. Only Jesus has love to God's satisfaction. Is Jesus Christ to you that great commandment keeper? The one who loved as we should. Now knowing the love, that love is required and knowing that you fall short of it does not bring you into the kingdom of God. That's not enough just to know about it. It requires that heart change of which I spoke earlier and it requires everything that Jesus is. I think John the Apostle describes it most wonderfully in his first epistle. If you wish, you may look there with me in 1 John chapter 4. I just want to read from that passage beginning in verse 7 all the way through verse 21 because a lot of people when we talk about love bring up love and they say, well, God is love and so He's just going to forgive everything bad that we do. Maybe we don't love like we should and, and that's, why, that's how we fulfill God's commandments but God is love and so He's not going to judge us. He wouldn't judge anyone. I don't want a God of judgment. I want a God of love. And that one little statement, God is love, that John uses here in this passage is so often misused and so often misunderstood. But think about what we've learned this morning from Mark chapter 12 and listen to what John says in this passage. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Christian, you should love and you should desire to love. And you should long for the day when you're out of this body and you're in the presence of the Lord and the glory of heaven and you can love perfectly. But it's enough now that you should desire that love and love like that as much as you can but understand the weakness of your flesh and in understanding all that, you look to Jesus Christ in faith as the great commandment keeper. Please pray with me. Our Father, we are overwhelmed when we think about what you require of us. And it is normal for us in our flesh to be anxious about that and to always be questioning our motivation and the sincerity of our heart to feel so woefully inadequate. But it is good that we do feel that way, but we should not despair. Help us not to despair. Help us as we have this day come together and come around your word and that your word might be ministered to us and that we might partake of the sacraments and be reminded that though we are condemned by the law, the good news 
is the declaration of this fulfillment of love by Jesus Christ our Lord on our behalf. We thank you so much, Father, that we are not left to our own ability, but that you are gracious and merciful, that you are faithful to your promise to send someone to stand in the gap for us. And so we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful keeper of the great commandment and of the second commandment of all your law, not only as he died for us, Father, for our failures, but he did what we cannot do. And it is that perfect life of love. It is that life given as a sacrifice on the cross. It is that life raised from the dead and seated at your right hand. It is Christ Jesus our Lord that is our comfort and our hope. And as we come to the table this morning and we partake of the elements, help us remember that it is because we are in Christ Jesus by faith that we can have a relationship with you at all, that we can be made right with you, that we can know what love truly is that we can experience it and that we can give it. And that we might be in your kingdom where love is the law. So now, O oh Lord, we do praise you. We do thank you for all your word, both the law and the gospel. And for what work you do in our hearts by your spirit. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.